0: you anybody want to say it back go ahead hey hey that's what gets it going right there all right well before I begin let me go ahead and say a little prayer okay get us going here our father we love you so much God and I pray right now that you would send your spirit to speak through me help me not to speak any falsehoods God but only in the truth Let Christ be proclaimed and let every uh, realm of self-righteousness be defeated today God help us to look at Christ our only hope in his, his name we pray, amen. All right, well, welcome. I'm, I'm sure that you're all asking, like, how, wow, Dan, you're looking really handsome today, aren't you, <laughs> Pastor Dan, huh? Yeah, well, if you're new here, I am not Pastor Dan, but I am his lookalike, and uh, he's, he's coming back from Mount Shasta, and so I'm stepping in for him today. So my name is David Torres. If we've never met, pleasure to meet you. In today's text, we're looking at Galatians 3, 23-29, but I want to share something, because I love you guys so much, I want to share something very personal with you, and it's a little picture, first of all, right there, you see that before and after, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I looked hungry right there on the left, and and, and so if you've never eaten at that restaurant, you haven't lived, by the way, you guys need to go there, but anyway, we all have a before and after, and this is one of mine, we probably have several in our lives. this is my before. We decided, my wife and I decided, we're going to try to be a little bit healthier, and that was the end result. Just a few years later, right? You know, and some others. You might have your own before and after. Uh, you know, before I had children, I had Samson-like hair. It was amazing, and then after children, this is it. And so, I think what Paul is describing here, and let me go ahead and switch that slide there. What Paul is describing here in Galatians three is our before and after. It's literally the biography of every single Christian who's ever lived. And it's a short biography, seven verses, but it is so filled with the entire concept of of the Christian life, and I think it's just a beautiful representation of of the Christian biography, everything that is before faith, all that we enjoy during faith, and everything that is to come. And so I I think it's pretty awesome, but I think in order to really get a a concept of this text, we need to get an overall context of the book of Galatians in, in general to really know why Paul is actually addressing these issues here. And so Paul was preaching around the provinces of Galatia. He was preaching the gospel. Many people came to faith, came to faith in Christ, were saved. It was wonderful. There was Jew and Gentile, lived alike, and we're having a, a wonderful fellowship together. But then all of a sudden, one day, these Judaizers came from Jerusalem, and they claimed to be under the, the headship of James, brother of Jesus, and um, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But they came, claimed to be Christians themselves. They came in preaching a false gospel to the Gentiles, especially, claiming that they had to be circumcised and that they had to follow the entire Mosaic law. So that not only faith wasn't just good enough, but you had to add works too. You had to follow the Mosaic law. And so Paul calls them in very strict terms. He said they're false brothers in chapter 2. These are not true Christians, these are people who are preaching a false gospel. And he actually says in Galatians 1 that if anybody preaches a false gospel, whether it be me or an angel from heaven, let him be anathema. Let him be eternally cursed. This is how serious this is. This is, this is a weighty matter. You know, This isn't just a matter of uh, can, can Christians celebrate Halloween or can we have a glass of wine? These little matters, This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of heaven and hell. This, this is really a matter of eternal souls at stake here. And so we know from the scriptures, and I'm preaching to the choir here, that we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8-9, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Right? And, and Paul even goes further in Galatians 5, and he says this, in regards to these who are teaching this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You're severed. You're cut off. You're condemned. These are are harsh words. This is no small matter. And so the book of Galatians was written specifically for this, to really answer the question, how are we made right with God? How can can a sinner be justified before a holy and perfect and righteous God? How can we be righteous before God? And so this is not just a first century problem. This is also a, a modern day problem. Every single false religion on the planet teaches faith plus works. This is is why Christianity stands out, as we're the religion of grace, that God comes, and he's gracious to us. He's the one providing mercy. And so in chapter 2, Paul goes on to establish his authority as an apostle. He's just not a man with a mere human opinion, but he actually has the authority to address these issues. He's actually sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and therefore he has the same authority as Christ. And so everything he's speaking about here has a weight of authority to it. And so Paul begins his argument at the end of chapter 2 and beginning in, verse, in, in chapter 3, and he begins his argument appealing to our experiences, and especially the Galatian experience. He says this in verses 2 and 3. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Now, now before we get self-righteous and say, yeah, Galatians, I mean, don't... Don't we do that sometimes as Christians as well? You know, we came to faith in Christ. We had everything, every blessing under heaven, under Christ. But sometimes we get to a point where we're like, you know, i got to please God with my works. You know? And this is what the Galatians were doing. This is what they were being preached to, is that that, that, that was something they had to do in order to be right with God. And he peels through our experience. Look, when I first came to you and preached the gospel, you believed. You had every blessing under Christ. You had salvation, fellowship. You have all the inheritances that come with Jesus Christ. And what are you doing? Why would you add to that? What is the point of that? And so his second line of argument is, of course, going to Scripture, which is the most powerful argument. And, of course, the the Judaizers at the time would have appealed to Scripture as well because, of course, they had the Scriptures. And um, in short, really, uh, Paul sums up his argument in one solidified verse from Habakkuk 2.4. He says this, the righteous shall live by faith. If you want to be righteous, it's by faith. By faith alone. But then he appeals to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And, of course, the Jews would have appealed to him as well. You know, and said, yeah, you know, especially these, these Jewish Christians who are trying to make the law part of the, the faith, they would have said, we have no problem with having faith in Christ. But, see, 430 years later, the, the Mosaic law came along. And, see, God's plan of salvation kind of switched up a little bit. Not only do we have faith, we have to follow the law in order to be saved. Right? But, but. Paul argues, and he gives a human argument in verse 15, and he says, you know what? Just because a new promise came along, or a new covenant came along, it doesn't nullify the old one. We're still saved, just like Abraham was. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The simple act of faith It's so simple, right? And so, of course, the, the next following question for every Jew, and, and this is what makes Paul so brilliant, is that, well, he knew the law, and so he knew the next question that would be asked by these Judaizers Well, and if we're not saved by the law, if it doesn't give us life, then what's the whole purpose of it? Why did God give us a law if it's just by faith? And he says this, it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. And so, see, there was a purpose for the law, and it wasn't to give life. And there's a few different purposes. Let me give you a a couple of, of purposes here. First of all, the revealed law in Scripture defines sin in the broadest sense. You know, uh, Paul uses, uh, uh, in Romans 7, he uses uh, the word coveting. He's, oh, I would have never known that coveting was a sin if it wasn't revealed to us in the law. And so because now I know, now I know I've sinned, I've coveted. And it killed me. The sin killed me. It, it, it just added up. It made me realize how much of a sinner I was. Romans 3.20 says this, that by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. And here's the key. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see you see the law, as some people have said it's like a mirror. You know, it, it doesn't make you ugly, it just shows you that you are. <laughs> you know? Or you, you can even use an example from my before picture, the law is kind of like a scale. It didn't really make me overweight, it just showed me that I was, right? You know, and, and, and so that's what the law does. It shows us our sin. It shows us the depravity of our souls and, and our desperate need of a savior. You know, and Number two, it, it, it tells us that we're criminals. It, it, sin isn't just some defect that is just happening to us. It's, it's actually an open violation of God's holiness. It's cosmic treason on a massive scale. The God who gave us everything, who created us, who puts breath in our lungs every single day. Every time we sin, we sin against him. And it's treason. It's criminal. And number three, it tells us that there's also a, there's also a penalty for breaking this law. We all know what it is. What are the, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. That's the penalty right there. And, and Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, and in verse 10 he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. We're cursed. This is what the law does. It curses us. It damns us. It makes us uh, imprisoned. It, it, it keeps us uh, down. It, it, it strips us of all self-righteousness. This is what the law was meant to do. Historically, we see this in, in the nation of Israel, too, in the full revelation of the law. They, if you think about any people in the history of the world who, sh, who could have been saved by the law, it was, it was the nation of Israel. They were given the full revelation of God's law, 613 of them. Imagine, 613 laws you have to, you have to follow. And what did we see? If you've ever read through the beginning the, to the end of the Old Testament, maybe you were just as frustrated as I was, but all you see is, is, is disobedience, divine punishment, disobedience, divine punishment, over and over again, Right? That's all you get. If the law could have saved anybody, it should have been them. But what did it prove historically is that the law can't save a soul. It's not meant to save us. It can't give us life. And so, of course, you know, when when Jesus comes on the scene, he really, uh, the the Jews at this point have become so self-righteous that we actually call them Pharisees, and we know what that means, that they're self-righteous. They think that they were good people, that religiously they had a fake religiosity to them. But Jesus comes in, and of course, he, was the first thing he does, he gets on the Sermon of the Mount, and he reveals the law to us in a, in a much greater way. He says, you know, you think you're so self-righteous, take adultery. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Try that. How are you doing with that one? Take murder. Oh, you never murder anybody? Well, you know what? If you said fool to your brother, you're a murderer. Try that on. We see a great, a great contrast, uh, especially with the rich young ruler. We all remember that story. You know, the, the, the rich young ruler comes to Christ and he says, he says, Jesus, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I can just imagine Jesus, you know, thinking, wow, this self-righteous kid, he has no idea what he's about to get up to right here, right? And so Jesus says, you know what you got to do. You have to obey your, you know, obey your parents, do all the commandments, do this, do that. And then, of course, the rich young ruler, he's, he's looking happy. I've been doing those ever since I was a kid. I've earned salvation, but then, wait, there's one thing you've missed. Go sell all your possessions and come follow me. And what did he do? He walked away pitiful in despair. Couldn't even follow the first law. Have no other gods before me. Have no other gods before me. And he walked away in despair. This is what the law does. It keeps us in despair. It weighs us down. And so with that intro, we're finally on the main passage. I hope you stuck with me that whole time. Verse 23. This is our before in our biography. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, there's a we here. Paul argues from a historical perspective, and then he goes to a personal perspective here, a very personal application. And he says that we, now this is definitely a Jewish we, that he's talking to the Judaizers, that, you know, we, over these centuries, have had the law. We've been imprisoned by it. Can't you tell? We've been in constant prison by the whole thing. But this is also a Christian way. Because every single one of us, I'm not Jewish. Haven't you ever felt the weight of the law in your own life? Have you ever never had the convictions that God's law is weighing on you, that you know you've sinned against him? You know, God's law was revealed fully in the scriptures, but he, he left every person without an excuse. And, and, and Romans 2 says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, that is the written law, they show that the work of law is written where? It's written on their hearts. Every single human being is created in the image of God, and every single one of us in human history has the law of God written on our hearts in some sense. The tribesmen in the deepest jungle will not have an excuse before God because the law is written on his heart, and it weighs on him. He knows he's in desperate need of someone to come save him. And so we go from this two two different uh, perspectives that that Paul gives us. He says we're imprisoned. He says we're shut in. There's no way of getting out. This is what the law does to us. It keeps us in prison and in constant despair. And then he uses a second term here, and let me go ahead and read it for you. He says, so then, the law was our, I'm going to use a different word than guardian. I'm going to use the word patagogos, until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. Now, there's a reason why I use that Greek word there. It's not because I know any Greek whatsoever. And, and I wish you could just see my page. I actually spelled it for, so I could pronounce it to you. P-I-E-D-A-Y-G-O-G-O-S-S. Piedego Goss. I don't know any Greek. Don't ever ask me a Greek question. But as I studied this passage, I realized that every single translation really wasn't fitting for what that, the depth of what Paul was trying to get at. And up here we see guardian. If you're reading out of NIV, you would see guardian. Um, the King James would say schoolmaster. Uh, N-A-S-B would say tutor so if you were to get all these translations, you would kind of get an idea that maybe this is like a teacher of some sort. But that's not what Paul is saying. It's not a teacher. It's a different word for that. So what a Pythagoras was, was a, was a slave or maybe a hired servant who would come and be the caretaker of young boys. And specifically in this day and age, it wasn't uncommon to have three or four young boys in your household. And you would, you would have a slave or a hired servant who would take care of them, who would be more like a disciplinary And uh, this word paedagogos was also used in in 1 Corinthians 4, and it was described as somebody with a rod. Somebody with a rod to discipline you. And I can't help but think of, uh, you know, the stereotypical nun with a ruler, and every time you did something bad, it would just smack you on the hand, right? And so this is kind of the idea that Paul has given to us, is that these young boys, wherever they went, they couldn't leave the house without their paedagogos. And the paedagogos' job was to discipline them anytime they would ever act up or disobey. And the Paragogos' job was also to bring the children to school, to the teacher, and then they would bring them home. And they were involved in every aspect of their lives. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be under the dominion of a Paragogos? When the child was finally raised up into maturity, was finally released from this Paragogos. It must have been great, you know? And so this seems all dreadful. We're imprisoned. We're, We're put to shame. We are... We're hemmed in and, and we're under the, this pedagogos who's, who's our dominion. And so, you know, if you ever read the Psalms, you might say to yourself, you know, these psalmists, they say, you know, the law is good. It's beautiful. I love the law of the Lord. And, it, and you might come away thinking, how can they say such a thing? You know? But a couple months ago, I, I, let me give you an example. A couple months ago. Uh, I came across this article, and there was this disease, this very rare genetic disease that I heard about. It's called CIPA, congenital insensitivity to pain. And, and what it was, it's a very rare genetic disease that you can't feel any pain whatsoever. You know? and, and for some of you moms in here, it, it, especially recently, we've had so many babies come through. I bet you're like, I could have used some of that during this childbirth. That would have been nice. But in fact, this is not a good good uh, disease to have at all, especially in children. It's very dangerous. Children could fall, break their legs, they wouldn't even feel it, heel's crooked, have no idea, you know? Or a lot of times what happens with people with this, this disease, especially in children, they, they're playing, they fall, they injure themselves, and they have no idea because they can't feel the pain. And so they bleed it internally and they end up dying, you know? And that's kind of how the law is for us, that, that, that pain is good. Pain is a good thing. See, because the pain is what what drives us to go see the physician. It's what drives us to see the doctor, right? And in the same way, the law works the same way. It drives us to to the doctor, to the physician, the only one who can save us, the only one who can get us out of prison, the only one who can free us. And that's the goal of the law. Isn't that good? Isn't the law good? Wasn't it good for you when you, you know, the, the only reason why you came to Christ is because you fell on your knees and you saw the depravity of your soul and you were like, there's no other way. There was no other way except by Jesus Christ. That's the point of the law. When the Jew asks in this, why the law? That's the purpose of the law, is to drive us to Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. And so once it does that, there's no need for the, the law anymore. There's no need for the Pythagoreas. You can imagine a, a, a Jew converting to Christ back then, thinking, I spent my whole life underneath these laws. Now I'm free. I'm free. What a freedom. What a freedom in Christ. You're no longer in prison. If the son makes you free, he makes you free indeed. And this is it right here. And so we get to the point of uh, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the pot of your gospel. In Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. What an amazing thing. How do you become a son of God? It's a good question. You know, who's the son of God revealed to us in scripture? Jesus. How do we become sons of God? Be in Christ. And then we're sons of God. And it says there, for in Christ Jesus, what an amazing thing. You know, we're, um, we're not only followers of Jesus Christ. We don't just follow his teachings, but we're actually in Christ. In some mystical, spiritual way, we are in him and he is in us. You know, many, many people have uh, say they, you know, we follow Buddha, but they don't say we're in Buddha or we follow Muhammad. But they don't say we're in Muhammad, but we, we have a special relationship with who we follow. We're in him. We are in him in a very spiritual, real way. And Ephesians 1 gives us so many benefits of being in Christ. It says, in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing. Look at the benefits of being in Christ. This is our current biography. This is us right now, if you are in Christ. And so he gives us two examples, too. Two um, amazing examples. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, baptized into Christ. Now, I don't want you looking at that thinking that's water because that is not water baptism. There is no way Paul is arguing for six chapters that we are saved by faith in order to add a work to it, like water baptism. This is not a water baptism. This is a spiritual baptism. And uh, I want to read Romans 6, 3 through 4 for you. It gives us a better understanding of what Paul's meaning here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that is immersed, that's what baptism means, immersed, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We, we, us, were buried, therefore, with him into, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, this is a spiritual baptism in some mystical way. that I have no understanding on how this works. It was you, it was me, all of us who were in Christ. We were there. We were in Christ when he died. We were in Christ when he was raised. That was us. We were in Christ. And, and in the same way, we have died. We have died to our sins and now we are made alive in Christ. We are alive. We are resurrected with him. That's why the Bible says before Christ we were dead in our sins. But now we are alive in Christ because we have been baptized into Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. But he says this too. This is, this is wonderful. We put on Christ. We put on Christ like a garment. You know, we've heard this terminology in the Bible. We say, you know, you wrap, we have, we're wrapped in the robes of righteousness. We're wrapped in Christ, you know. And I think we get, a, we get a, a, a wonderful meaning to this when we look back at the very beginning of human history, believe it or not. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They fell into sin. And what's the first thing they do? They're, they're full of shame, so they cover themselves up. They see their nakedness and their shame. They, they make fig leaves, right, and they cover themselves up. They think, maybe by my own works, I can cover up my own shame. You know? A few verses later, it's the first time the gospel is ever given in the Bible. And guess who it's given by? It's given by God. He says in verse 15 that the seed of a woman is going to come. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. But his heel is going to be bruised, meaning that he's going to die on a cross. But yet, that death on the cross is going to crush the devil. You know? But then in verse 21, after he gives the gospel, he says, Adam and Eve, come here get those fig leaves off you, and I'm going to put an animal skin on you. You see? Because your good works aren't going to save you. It's going to take a sacrifice. And that's what he's pointing at. This is what the law was pointing at to Adam and Eve. This is what it points to us, that it takes a sacrifice, and you must be wrapped in that sacrifice. And that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. And when you have your faith in him, you are wrapped. You put on Christ. You put on his righteousness so that when God the Father sees us, He doesn't see us directly. He sees Christ first. He sees him first. Isn't that beautiful? I don't want him to see me directly. I want him to see Jesus Christ. I do. Oh, So we're one with Christ. But then in verse 28, let me read it for you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. We are not only one in Christ, but we're one with one another. You know, and now don't look around and say I don't really like that guy. I don't know about this. I don't know about this being one with another stuff. You know, but we are one with an- one another. We are so unified together. And, it's, and 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 the context of this, the reason why Paul would be bringing this up is because the Jews thought that maybe because genetically, they thought they were the the sons of Abraham genetically. So they had like a racial superiority about them. We're Jews. Abraham's our father. And we saw this play down in uh, John chapter 8. Where they said the same thing to Jesus. And Jesus says, says no, if, if you were the sons of Abraham, you would believe me. But instead, you're the sons of the devil. That's some harsh words. You know? It crushed all the racial superiority that they thought they had. You know? And what a message, I'll tell you, what a message we need today in our culture. Because every time I turn on the news, I'll tell you what, I, I feel like our, our country is so separated on racial, ethnic backgrounds, and it's just getting worse. You know, you have, you have the black community and the white community, and for some reason, they're over here and they're over here, and we're supposed to be pitted against one another, and, and, it, and it's ugly. And I'll tell you what, this is what I expect from the world. The world doesn't know God. If they know God, it wouldn't be this way, right? You know, if they, know God, if they don't know God, so how are they going to come up? What kind of standard are they going to use? Whose human opinion gets to determine who has value or not? We've seen this played out in human history. Who has value? And then you separate people. There's, there's no, for the sake of diversity, they sacrifice unity. And for the sake of unity, they sacrifice diversity. But they can never combine the two. Only in the Christian worldview do we have the proper foundation to be able to have racial reconciliation in this country. In, in, in Christ at all. Because God, he's, he's the father. He's the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. There's diversity, but yet he is one essence. He is one God. There's the perfect unity and perfect diversity and perfect harmony. He is our standard. And in order to reconcile, we have the cross. We have the cross to reconcile us together. You know, we have the, the highest standard, and while the world doesn't have any standard whatsoever. What do you expect? There's always going to be an oppressor and, and, and the oppressed. But in Christ, this can't be. Racism is an, is an absolute heresy from the pit of hell. It doesn't belong in Christ because racism not only divides us and offends our brothers and sisters, but it's an absolute denial of the triune God who has perfect unity and perfect diversity and perfect harmony. It's a denial of who he is. There's a reason why, why it's, a, it's, a, it's a sin to lie. It's because God is the truth. There's a reason why it's a sin to murder because God is the author and giver of life. There's a reason why adultery is wrong, because God is faithful. He's, He's the foundation. He is how we view everything. And he's the foundation for how we view racial harmony.
1: And in Christ,
0: the most wonderful thing is that we get to enjoy each other's diversity all with being unified. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. But not only that. There's, there's, there's also no social divide. There's no you're slave, nor free. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much you don't have. We are all one in Christ. One of the most radical things that he ends on this is, is that there is no male or female. At the time, that would have been just a radical statement that we are all equals in Christ, male or female, that there is no difference in value based on gender. What a beautiful thing to be one in Christ. You know? Now we get to the future, to the future of our biography here. It's verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now Abraham's offspring, Paul used this argument earlier in the chapter, and he made it a point to show us that the promise to Abraham was to a singular offspring. It wasn't to offsprings. And some translations might have said that it was a singular seed, not seeds. And we see this in Romans 4. He, He brings this up in Romans 4 as well. And the point is that that this promise was to just Christ. It was just to Christ. That all the riches of heaven and all the blessings were to be given to Jesus Christ. Now I know, maybe if some of you in the age of uh, prosperity gospel preaching, you know, if it's all, it's all about you, right? But I'm sorry, sorry to break you the news, but Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. All about him first and foremost, it's the supremacy of Christ. But because God is rich in mercy, we indirectly, because we are in Christ by faith have those blessings as well, you know? But the promise was made to the seed, Christ alone. And it says that Christ is the heir of all things. And it says that we are heirs, according to this promise, but the Hebrews 1 says that Christ is the heir of all things. You ask, what is the inheritance that we're going to receive? It's the same thing as Christ. And what did Christ inherit? All things. Everything, the entire universe, everything in the heavens and on earth. He owns it all. Every planet Every star all the way to the smallest subatomic particle is all his. And, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. What an amazing thing. It's all his. It belongs to him. I like, I like how Abraham Kuyper put it. Uh, he said, there is not a square inch in all of human existence where Christ does not cry out, mine. It's his. It's all his. And because we are in Christ, we are heirs with Christ. And guess what? We're going to have an inheritance one day. It's going to be a new heavens, a new earth where there will be no more suffering, no more death. And that will be ours. That will be ours. You want to know what your inheritance is in Christ? It's that. Everything. I hope that's enough. But as I went through this this passage this week, you know, I kept thinking about what, what an amazing thing to be called a son of God. That we can actually call him father. That we can come to him and say father. You know. And that we're heirs and we're going to receive all this inheritance from God. And I I just couldn't. I couldn't, um, couldn't stay away from the thought about thinking of my own father. And he, he passed away about a year ago, a little over a year ago. And we didn't have the best relationship. He, were, he was very much in and out of my life. Uh, he, was a, he was an alcoholic and a, a womanizer, definitely. And depending on how much alcohol he drank was dependent on how great our relationship was. And so we'd always argue, and then a few months later, he'd call me back, and we'd make up again. About six months before he was diagnosed with cancer, though, was the last time I ever spoke to him. And it didn't end well. He, we ended on an argument, and I thought, well, a few months, he'll call me back. We'll just repeat this over and over again. But he didn't. He never called me back. I, I got news that he passed away. And, and I'll, I want to tell you the thing I never thought of, never once thought of, when my, my father passed away. I wonder what he left me. I wonder what I'm going to inherit. I never thought of that once. You know what I thought of? I thought of I just wish I had my dad. That's all I wanted. You know, we're gonna inherit everything with Christ. But the greatest inheritance we're gonna have is the fullness of God Himself. We're gonna inherit God in the fullness. He's gonna be our God, we're gonna be his people, and we're gonna see him face to face. We will have a father who will never leave us or, or forsake us. That is our greatest inheritance, is God Himself. That is our biography. From prison. From despair to being in Christ to receiving God and all, all that he is and all that he has. Amen? you pray. Our Father, what a great God you are.